0: top of the hour but I want to do it again as we look to Ezra. Ezra chapter 1 and this is what they actually call the people of God to do at the beginning of Nehemiah and sort of with that in mind we will read God's word. Ezra chapter 1 verses 5 through 11. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and costly, with costly wares besides all that was freely offered." Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Shesh Bazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This is your word, and this is, Lord, a sacred moment for you to speak into our lives. I pray that this word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would be transformational, and Lord, that it would apply directly to each heart and soul in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. (laughs) It's been cold lately, hasn't it? It has been... I mean, seriously, talk to me now. Has it been a little bit colder than normal? I mean, wow, it's been below freezing. And I think that the Lord sort of greased the skids for us to come because some things were hidden from us before we came. The last couple of years, the cold snaps have not been quite that snappy. But anyway, it's, it's been cold, and with the cold have... Uh, you know, there have been more Kratz children's stories. And so I want to share one this morning, um, and it will tie in to where we're going. But, you know, we truck our kids around town and in the suburban, and many of you know we have six kids, and we have three that are younger, twin boys that are four, and then a two-year-old boy. And Judy braved the cold with them, those three little ones, to Target just this week. She likes to go there. It gives her an opportunity. Just whether she buys something or not, it's just a time to relax. So she goes to do that, and she strategically parks the Suburban by the cart corral. And that is a strategic move for moms to make because they're right by the cart. So she unpacks the twins, and they get out on the driver's side, and she gives express, you know, sort of orders, stand by the car. And so as she does that, she turns to unfasten Owen, and by the time she had unfastened Owen and turned around, she found two very sad-faced four-year-old boys. She said, what's going on? She notices the bar that is uh, on the cart corral and how frosty it is, and, and sort of iced over, and she looks at Carson and says, what's the matter? And, and, and she had said to Carson, listen, boys, whatever you do, don't put your tongues on the bar. And Carson looks at her with tears and says, I already did. And so he opened up his mouth and it's filled with blood. It's kind of gross. But she goes, okay, well, well, Brady, whatever you do, don't put your tongue on the cart corral bar. And he goes, I already did. So both of their mouths filled with blood. Hey, let's go to Target, you know. These are the mundane things of life, right? The the part of the routine part of a mom's world and we all have our own version of things that might not seem to be that big a deal but they're a big deal in the lives of little ones. I had to sort of reflect upon the time where I was in the grocery store and put my tongue on some ice in the freezer section and felt that ripping sensation and never forgot it, right? These are mundane things. But in view of this text, I want to just say that on first read, this might seem like a mundane, sort of ordinary, non-electrifying text. But the mundane is what God rules, and God rules through the mundane in our lives. And as I thought about this text, I remembered sort of a quote concept from Paul David Tripp, who's a spiritual counselor and leader and author um, from CCEF, Christian Counselors Foundation. And here's the quote. It's put up on the screen. If God doesn't rule your mundane, then he doesn't rule your life. God has to be Lord over it all for him to be Lord at all in your life. God rules our mundane. And he rules through things that on the surface don't seem to be powerful at all as he's advancing his kingdom. Every time you decide to pray with your child, that might seem mundane, but there's something very powerful that's happening at that point. Every time you open the word of God with your children or your spouse... That might seem mundane, but it's powerful. Every time you recommend a Christian book to someone, or you read a Christian book that someone's recommended, God's behind the scenes doing something. Whether you go to a Bible study, you commit to that, or you don't. That, those, those are very, very big time decisions. I. Um, This week heard from someone in our, our congregation who sort of was tearfully sharing her heart with me and saying thank you so much for me giving her this resource because she's clung to it through a very personal trial in her life. And, uh, you know, personally, as a pastor, here's how mundane that decision was on the front end. There was no trial in that person's life at that time. I looked at my shelf at home. It was cluttered with some extra materials. And I said, well, I'll take this to my office. And, oh, you know what? That person's been asking about this topic. And I sent it to her through the secretary. Then all of a sudden her world turns upside down and that mundane sort of process meant everything to her. And that's nothing on me. It's just how the Lord works through what on the surface looks very, very mundane. I remember talking to an associate pastor one time and he was talking about how in his early childhood his father had died. And he was reflecting upon that with me and how hard that was. And he said that as a 12-year-old boy, he was shooting baskets in his front yard in his driveway. And his father decided to shoot baskets with him. And he said, look, you have no idea how. He'll never know how important that little basketball session was for me as a 12-year-old boy. God works through the mundane circumstances of our lives. My wife, her testimony is is one where she was at a Christian um, Bible Institute, and it, it was sort of good Bible teaching and some legalism, and then she started to read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship, and it began to open her world, even as Christian leaders were sort of looking down on that decision to read that book. It talks about costly grace and That institution was more into easy believism and so costly grace where you have to consider the lordship of Christ and what it cost Christ to buy us by his grace to be his. Um, Those things weren't smiled upon there, but it was changing her world. Then she picked up another book in a lobby somewhere, and it was called Our Sufficiency in Christ. She had no idea who the author was. It was John MacArthur, but it transformed her life, and all of a sudden she was moving to the West Coast where we met. And then, you know, I was reflecting upon my college years. Again, we should all have these stories because God works through the mundane. But I wanted to be part of a college and career ministry at Thomas Road Baptist Church. It was connected with my college, and, and I wanted to get in, and I was putting my application in and wanting to be trained. And then there were some people there that were a little bit more liberal in their persuasion. They didn't like me per se. They didn't believe in me. I wanted to be the intern, sort of the student leader. And so I was in discussions about this and praying about it. There were some women from a a women's college that had just been coming in, sort of an influx of a new group. And the leader didn't want to lose those women, but those girls, they didn't like me. They didn't like what I stood for. And so it was a problem, but God was working behind the scenes because those girls, they went to a conference called Urbana. Have you ever heard of that? Big nationwide, even worldwide missions conference, 20,000 college students coming together. They still have Urbana. It's in Urbana, Illinois. And in 1993, they were there in the crowd, and then they all broke out into prayer groups and prayer sessions to pray for revival. So these girls were split out into a group of about 50 people in a, a back room praying for a revival. And God had orchestrated it that while they were all praying out loud, my best friend from junior high and high school, who I grew up with as an unbeliever, who got saved when I got saved, who we used to take to church on Sunday mornings, he begins to pray out loud in that group. Now, we're from Virginia. This is up in Illinois. In that breakout session group, and he's saying, "Oh Lord, you know, thank you for my testimony. How you brought me to faith in Christ, and you used this brother Jeff Crotz from Virginia Beach, Virginia, um, to help lead me to Christ, and his parents, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And these girls are sitting there going, "Whoa, you know what's going on?" Suddenly, I was ushered in to be that student leader and be trained. At that point, I'm not anything special. It's just God works through the details of our lives, and we dare not miss them. Again, if God doesn't rule your mundane, then he doesn't rule your life. So my goal in this text is simply to do this. My goal is, and you put it up on the screen, see, seeing God powerfully act through what appears to be mundane. Okay, can we do that together? Seeing God powerfully act through what appears on the surface to be mundane, even through three groups of people, three kinds of people, in the first kind, we'll find in verse 5, that is the believers, the believers. Look at verse 5 again. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone. Stop there. On the surface, what we have here is God's people who were in exile In Babylonia, 500 miles away, due northwest away from Judah and Jerusalem. They're in exile, about 50,000 to 100,000 people. And they are responding on the surface to an edict or an order that the Persian king Cyrus has given. The, The Persian king Cyrus, as we learned last week and week before, has given an edict for the Jews to go back home. That's what is going on. There's an order, and these people, as verse 5 says, are raising their heads up and looking around and going, okay, that's us, it's time to go. And there are certain classes within classes here. You've got people who are fathers over tribes. The two tribes of the southern kingdom that had been ushered into exile are Judah and Benjamin. So you've got some father figures, some spiritual father heads who are saying, okay, it's Okay, we got the edict, got it, got the order, it's, it's written, we're, we're hearing it around, okay, it's time to go. It's time to go. This isn't a political decision. This is more of a spiritual move as these sort of spiritual leaders are being asked to go. And it says the priests and the Levites. Again, the political kingdom had, had failed. The southern kingdom had been swallowed up by Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, and they'd been in exile for 70 years. And so now they're just going, okay, okay. All right, you're a Levite, you're a priest. Let's 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 get back to our priestly duties. Let's let's reorganize ourselves in terms of the two southern kingdom tribes that had been sent up in exile and and let's go. They're just making decisions. And then verse 5 it says everyone. So everyone around that's a believer, that's a Jew is deciding to go. That's what's happening on the surface. Now let's go beneath the surface. Because beneath the surface here what we have is something very special. It's a secret that God opens up in the text. What's really behind the scenes with this decision to obey the edict? Look at verse 5. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house. Behind the scenes, whether you were a father of a tribe, whether you're a Levite, a priest, or everyone else, God was stirring their hearts to go. God was doing it behind the scenes. Superficially, hey, it's the king's order, let's go. No, spiritually, God's kingdom is advancing. God is moving history as part of God's program to fulfill it through his 50,000 people. This small remnant up there, he's moving them home. It's a royal summons that you can see here. It's what God does in the heart of dead sinners. When dead sinners are going in one direction... He awakens them and they become Christians. Jesus said to Nicodemus, "You must be born again." When God lights the fuse, you're born again and your eyes open, and your head comes up, and you go, "Oh, oh, I, I, I want to start going to church." You know what? I, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to church with uh, this neighbor after all, all. Right? You know, I'm gonna bring my. I want my family to grow up in a good moral background, and a, you know, I, th- I think I'm gonna do that. Or, you know, I've been dating this gal or this guy, and. Yeah, it's really not a believer, not going, I'm going to break up. You know, I mean, those decisions on the surface might seem superficial, no big deal. But we know as things play out that in God's kingdom, those are huge deals, huge decisions. And God is stirring people behind the scenes. And when you're talking about believers, he's stirring people spiritually, where the word of God connects in a heart and convictions are born. And your life is changed Forever, this this was obedience that was going deeper than the obedience of Cyrus, King Cyrus. Verse one, he was stirred, same word, he was aroused to do um, to write an edict and to lead and 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 order the people to go home. And he was doing it sort of for political advancement, so he could leverage Jerusalem later, probably, and all of that. But these believers were being stirred to watch this recentralized worship in the city of Zion for God's glory. That's what believers here were doing. It was them having to get out of an exile mindset. Now remember, they're not enslaved up there. They were just exiled to there. They were captured and reshuffled there, but they had integrated into the society of Babylonia under this new Persian king. And so they, you know, two generations had passed since, since they'd been up there 70 years. So you got young families, couples, you got people who are very comfortable, they've got their kids there, you've got the elderly people who are there. They're not necessarily, like, going to get it, but God was stirring them behind the scenes to get it. And they needed to because it was a big deal call to not only just pack up and move, but to bring community Back to Jerusalem. To re-energize fellowship around Jerusalem, around temple worship. We're not talking about a building program or bricks and mortar. We're talking about obedience to God from the heart to bring worship. To bring reinvigorated, reconstituted, uh, an identity building move for worship you know as you think about the three million jews that came under the tyranny of pharaoh out of egypt when they were redeemed out of that they had the shekinah glory cloud that they were following right you know shekinah glory in this text the shekinah has has gone the glory of god is in heaven and in their hearts as believers There's no physical manifestation of the glory. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant, there's no mention of the Ark here when we're going to talk about the temple furniture that's given back. The Ark isn't there. The Ten Commandments aren't there. Those articles, those artifacts were destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed and sacked Babylon. That's the idea. That's the understanding because there's no mention of those articles. Not there. So there's not a Shekinah presence There, they're just having to go by faith. In fact, do you realize that Ezekiel, as a prophet, and he makes this point, he was around these exiles during this time. If you were to read Ezekiel, it talks about how he was talking to elders and and prophesying to the, the people from Judah in exile. And what he says in chapter 1 of Ezekiel is that he has seen a vision of God where he sees a roving, roaming ark presence of God. And it's the throne of God in heaven and it's surrounded by thunder and lightning. This is all Ezekiel 1 with what's a veritable laser light show of glory. And then in Ezekiel 1, if you look there, Ezekiel one twenty six. There's something very interesting because it reads, And above the expanse, over the heads, there was the likeness of a throne. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. Who do you think the human appearance is? Well, it's Jesus Christ. It is. Ezekiel, who was there, was seeing Christ And that was the call for these believers, for them to see God's glory by faith and believe that there was a Messiah that was coming. Because remember, in the storyline here in the Old Testament, Ezra falls right before the silent years, right before the 400 years of silence that are the interlude between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of where the Gospels pick up, where Jesus Christ comes on the scene. And so these exiles were really... They needed to be moved on the heart level to see Jesus and to want a Messiah and to want his glory. And the beginning of that was to move back down to the city of Zion, Jerusalem, to reconstitute. this. Listen, listen to me. Historically, this was sort of beyond the pale. Uh, never in history has a city been so ripped away from its homeland... And actually returned to it in the way that Jerusalem has, the way that Israel has returned. Have you ever thought about 25 you know, centuries later or 15, you know, 2,500 years have passed and Israel is still there, but it had been completely ripped away and it's come back. That's never happened before or since. This is a miracle that that nation is there. It was a nation that was being called to come out of an exile mindset. We shouldn't really look down on them, should we? I mean, think about it. If you were up there and you're comfortable and you've sort of integrated into the society, you don't necessarily want to pick up and move, do you? They had to be impelled or compelled on a heart level. To rebuild, Not just to rebuild a physical structure. There's nothing sacrosanct about a temple, but they needed to rebuild worship. And I don't want to make too much of this, but, you know, even something like our renewal project and getting together next week and having a pizza lunch, that can sound very mundane on the surface. But just remember, God is building his kingdom, and he's building his kingdom here locally through you. And it's important for us to prayerfully consider, what is your will, God? What is your will in my life? What is your will for this church? What is my spiritual gift as I need to use it in the body of Christ to be a part of his mission here in Alaska? Two generations had passed for those believers up there in Babylonia. And I, you know, I kind of compare that to the New Testament church today, what we find here in our country, and what we find in Europe today. There's sort of an exile mindset. If you think about it, in Europe, the missionaries that came over to America to evangelize us were coming from where? Europe? Like the UK? Think of George Whitefield, a preacher, the Wesley brothers. They were coming over here to, to win us to Christ, and they won us to Christ And the church has flourished here, but a couple generations have passed in Europe by and large. I mean, there's the remnant there, there's the church there, but it's not nearly what it was two generations ago. And we might be one generation away from being in the same exact place. And if we were to soul search and be honest about that, that's probably coming unless the Lord intervenes and gives us revival in our country once again, right? Exile mindset. It's breaking out of that that matters for his church, for his continuance. What, what do our kids think about us? Do they think we have an on-fire, white-hot zeal for Christ and his church, and that matters, and that overrules everything in the mundane details of our lives? Or do they see us as having an exile mindset? Very important to think through. Are we part of rebuilding and repairing fellowship for the Lord Well, that's, you know, that's what's beneath the surface. And again, we shouldn't judge these people. Jeremiah 29, it talks about Jeremiah. Again, his feet were on the ground in Judah, and he was giving sort of mail and air support to these exiles. He was prophesying on their behalf, and he was encouraging them. If you were to read Jeremiah 29, it's a letter. It's correspondence from Jeremiah to the exiles saying, hang in there. And he was actually encouraging them to integrate into the city at that point build houses, take wives, invest in the city. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. Be part of this. Ezekiel, he was moving freely amongst the people. They weren't enslaved up there, so they had to sort of shake awake and come home. And it was a monumental transition. That's why I've titled this series, and perhaps the book series, Changing Worlds. It's changing mindsets really is to do the work of God. It's not just building a temple. Jeremiah 7 is where Jeremiah warned. He gave a warning prophecy about just involving yourself in temple worship out of religion. I mean, building projects should never be about bricks and mortar and looks and aesthetics. It's about building fellowship. It's about building church community. It's about building mission. It's about building for the glory of God. That's what we're all about as a church. And that's what they were called to be a part of as well. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah condemned the people in Jeremiah 7 saying, listen, if you don't sort of help the widow if you don't help the orphan, the fatherless, then God will not come to dwell with you. Very important. Zechariah, one of the prophets that preaches to... The temple builders, we're going to get to that later, Haggai and Zechariah, they intervene because the work stops and for 20 years there's a gap where they stop working, they get demotivated. There are people who are naysayers who don't want the project to go forward. They're they're against the building and Zechariah, he reminds through the angel who's speaking in Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. And that's how it should be in our personal lives as well. We're each the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're all living stones, living through the mundane details of our lives. How are you going to make it tomorrow? How are you going to make it this week? Not by my power, not by my strength, but by the Spirit of the Lord, right? It takes everything we got to yield to God, for God to invigorate us, to serve Him in our little temple ministry, which is our families. We need the Spirit of God, right? They, they didn't just obey the edict. In other words, Ezra 1 verse 5 makes it very clear that they had to be stirred. Philippians 2 says the same thing. Philippians 2 verse 12, it says, Work out your salvation in what? With boldness and strength and No, in fear and trembling. It's hard to grow spiritually, isn't it? It's difficult work to get in the Bible and apply the Bible and grow in your salvation and grow in your spiritual maturity process. If anybody tells you that it's easy to grow in the Christian life, they don't understand it. It's swimming upstream against the world, the flesh, and the devil. It takes the Spirit of God. Verse 13, we work out our salvation in fear and trembling for it is God who is working in us both the will and the work for his good pleasure. God has to stir our spirits to grow. Well, that's the believers. That's category number one. Working through the mundane. 50,000 people, this remnant, calling them home. Now let's look at how the unbelievers responded. I think they were stirred as well. Look at verse 6. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares. Besides all that was freely offered, these unbelievers, these townsmen, these multi-millions of people that were around the remnant, they catch on to the king's edict, but I think that they weren't just obeying the king's edict. But they themselves, I think, were stirred as well because of the end of verse 6. They were freely offering goods to pad, to to help, to be part of this work. You say, well, how does this apply to us today? Well, I, I think that we need to understand that in God's grace, the world oftentimes picks up on the good part of the mission of the church. You ever think about that? Why does you know, the government at times smile on the church? Why do... Societies and cities and communities look at the church and see it as a good thing. Well, it's because they understand, per their own conscience, the difference between good and evil. Now the world will choose an evil path ultimately, a wide road that leads to destruction, But at points, there is common grace that intervenes. Matthew 548 says, "God reigns. He sends rain on the just and the unjust." He feeds us. And people sort of see the witness of God through creation, Romans 1. So they are without excuse. They, they hear the voice of God through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God through the firmament, Psalm 19. Right? Romans chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 it talks about how everyone is born with the law in their hearts. It's both accusing and excusing them as they make decisions in their conscience. So people understand the good part of what they see in Christianity even and the church and oftentimes people will promote it and God is stirring this group to even do that. Warren Wiersbe, a pretty widely read and known pastor, he said this. He said that God who ordains the end ordains the means to an end. You might say, look, I can't get on mission. Who am I, you know? I, I, I'm too old. I did my mission work in the 70s. I can tell you the story. Or 80s or 90s and I'm done. Well, you know what? God doesn't put older people out to pasture. Sorry, he doesn't. God will not put more on you than he puts in you to bear up. And he will give you the strength spiritually and he will give you the means physically to serve him in his kingdom. You say, well, I'm tired. I have young kids. I can't get on mission. I can't show up. I can't do this. God will give you grace to be on mission for his glory, for his church, for his kingdom. Do you think God wants missionaries to go? You know, Sunday night, tonight at 6 p.m., you guys will all be faced with the decision whether to come or not. I understand if you can't come. I'm not you know, a heavy-handed, legalistic tyrant, or at least I don't think I am. But here it is. It's a great opportunity to show up and say, I'm going to do something that I've not normally done and carve time out of my schedule and show up to pray with and for missionaries, to support, to be a part of it. Tonight, one of our elders, Cal Dunham, is going to be presenting um, uh, Vets with a Mission. Brian Daigle, as I mentioned before, he can't come. He was prevented from coming because of weather in Seattle. So one of our elders, Cal Dunham, every year goes to Vietnam. He and Fran, his wife, are faithful supporters of Vets with a Mission. Cal Dunham is a decorated, Purple Heart veteran who served our country. And then his heart turns to go back to that country and invest in them for the kingdom of God and build churches and build pastors for the glory of God. That's exciting, but it takes the eyes of faith to get beneath the surface to say, okay, I can show up tonight and pray with them and hear about this mission and perhaps give to this mission or perhaps make friends with Cal and go on mission. I want to go to Vietnam at some point. I want to be a part of that. I don't want to miss out on God's kingdom, right? Don't you want to take some of the temple vessels back to Jerusalem, right? That's what this is. It's kingdom work. It's kingdom investment. It's getting behind it. And being a part of things. Well, on the surface, the unbelievers were just helping a cause. What was going on beneath the surface, beneath their free will offerings? Let's look here. Beneath the surface, these unbelievers were redeeming God's people. I think that's the symbol here. Just like how the Egyptians, remember when they were being released from their captivity... From their bondage, enslavement, the, the, the believers actually were given favor in the eyes of the Egyptians as they were leaving. And so the, the believing Jews plundered the Egyptians. Well, in the same way, there's sort of this, you know, comeuppance. There's this sort of justice moment where the exiles, these rem, this remnant was being given gifts fulfill their mission. Now they weren't coming out of enslavement but they were coming out of exile and they were being moved back because God was a part of it. He was moving history. He was working the details to bring his temple presence back as a beginning to usher in the coming of Christ. That's how it connects forward. Symbolizes the justice of heaven doesn't it? I mean, God's world, it might not understand the church, but the church is moving on. The truth is marching on. I love that lyric. And the world, whether it knows it or not, is sort of getting out of the way and even helping this come to fruition, where one day we as exiles, as strangers, as wanderers, as sojourners, are going to reconstitute our citizenship in heaven, in the temple of God, where Christ is present where we see him face to face and we're journeying in the same way and ultimately all the wrongs done here on earth against us against family against the church are made right in the riches of heaven well let's look finally at the last category the last person that i'm bringing up is verses 7 through 11 mundane things where god is doing extraordinary things on the surface King Cyrus was giving back what he had stolen. Start there. Verse 7, Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. I'm just going to be able to introduce this point. We'll pick up on it next week. But Cyrus, as we know, was stirred to create the edict, the command for the children to come home. And Cyrus now, I think in the same way, had been stirred to go into the house, the Babylonian demigod, false religion institution under Marduk, the king Babylonian god, and he grabs the temple vessels and begins an accounting process of what Nebuchadnezzar had stolen when he sacked the temple 70 years before. And these temple vessels are going to be sent home with the children of Israel. To skip ahead, look at verse 11, one of the most mundane on first read lines, which is a profound line in scripture. Look at this. When the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem, it happened. It happened. A city that had been sacked, a nation that had been burned down 100 years before their exile the northern kingdom, ten tribes ripped away from the Assyrians. The southern kingdom by Babylonians, by Nebuchadnezzar, sacked, ripped away in exile. And then, guess what? It's all coming back. God wins in the end. That's the point here. That's what's beneath the surface. But on the surface, you have Cyrus just saying, okay, politically, this is a good move. I'll go out, I'll get the temple vessels, and we'll send them back with these exiles. We'll, we'll do a good accounting work here and we'll send them back. And on the surface, it's just returning what had been stolen. Nebuchadnezzar had stolen them and then Cyrus took over Nebuchadnezzar's domain and kingdom and so he's going I'm going to return them. I'm gonna, it's, a, it's a good faith gesture. We'll set up you know, that city again and I'll be able to leverage that and still lead it politically and springboard off of that for more world takeover. Probably what was in Cyrus' mind according to history and artifacts. So what's happening here? Well, Nebuchadnezzar before had taken the temple artifacts. He probably had destroyed the Ark of the Covenant, as I mentioned. But he took, you know, this silver and this gold, as all the armies did back then, to say a couple things. Number one, we beat you. We won. So we're taking your goods out. And we're going to bring them back or destroy them and bring them back into our temple. We're actually going to take these artifacts and put them in the temple of Marduk to show that Marduk rules. It's the Babylonians saying, you know, praise Marduk from whom all blessings flow, right? Saying, look, this is our domination. We won, we beat you. It's what the Philistines did with the Ark of the Covenant when they took it out in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and they put it in the temple of Dagon, the fish god, and they wanted... Um, Dagon to be worshipped by the Ark of the Covenant and the next day Dagon's head was severed and his arms were severed and he was bowed down low in a couple days of, of God making a point that God rules no matter where he is. And so Cyrus on the surface is just saying look, well, you know, that's over. That's over. I'm returning the stuff back to you. Second Chronicles 36 talks about how it had originally been taken. He's making it right. But listen, beneath the surface, this is what's happening. We're going to pick up on this next week. Beneath the surface, King Cyrus was reconciling blasphemy. Blasphemy. He didn't know it, but it was blasphemy of what had been done. Because God cares about his temple vessels. Because his honor and his glory is enmeshed in those symbols of worship. We're going to learn about this, and you can read ahead in Daniel chapter 5, because you can read about how Belteshazzar, who was in power during the time of the exile period, remember Daniel, he went with the royal family first in exile, and you can read about Belteshazzar, how he, under Babylonian rule, he was the successor under Nebuchadnezzar, he took over, and to sort of flaunt his power and flaunt his fame and say, I win, I'm bigger than God, we're going to have a festival with all of my harlots, my concubines and wives and we're going to bring out all this temple vessels of of Yahweh and we're going to have a wine and drinking party with that stuff. And all of a sudden God's hand shows up and writes something on the wall that scares Belteshazzar to death and it should have because he wasn't long for this world when he did that. It's blasphemy. But guess what? We're his temple vessels now in his kingdom. We're going to look at this next time, but in the New Testament scripture in Second Timothy, it talks about how we are his temple vessels, Second Timothy chapter 2. You want to think God cares about those vessels from the Old Testament? Guess what? He cares about you even more. He doesn't just care about you because he made you. He cares about you because he remade you. And you're part of his kingdom. And just as there was a strong, precise accounting here, he accounts for your life. And he wants you to be part of his worship in his temple. A couple points of application. Number one. Again, i got to just repeat material here, uh, Paul David Tripp. If God doesn't rule your mundane, then he doesn't rule your life. Does does God rule every area of your life? And I want to ask you to bow your heads at this point. Let's take this as a, a mode of prayer as we finish, because one point leads to the other, and I'll read them to you. Number two, ask the Lord to expose right now what you are dismissing in your life as unimportant. Which to God is very important. Who's out there that you're missing? Who's mundane in your world that you've not looked beneath the surface? Your children, your spouse, your friend, your hurting friend, your neighbor, your co-worker. Look beneath the surface by the eyes of faith and ask God to expose those people in your world that you need to reach out to and care about and see in terms of the kingdom. Number three, ask the Lord for eyes of faith to see people he is stirring that you are missing. There might be people around you that are being stirred on your behalf, stirred to reach out to you. And you need to seek the Lord and say, Lord, what are you stirring up? What is your kingdom work? Because I now want to be a part of it. Maybe you've never been stirred at all. Maybe you're sitting there and you're wondering, am I a believer? I'm not stirred. I want to be stirred. I would ask you in your heart to pray, Lord, stir me for the first time. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Let me read the scripture and see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I pray that that moving ark, that vision of Ezekiel where there was the appearance of the man, Jesus Christ, that that appearance would be a vision of beauty and glory in the mind's eye of many around this room, people who don't yet know you. I pray that you would awaken them. And I pray that you would call some here to be your preachers, to be your missionaries, to be your servants, to be your senders, but to be, to be your goers. I pray that your holy Spirit would work. Number four says, remember God's precise accounting of you and His commitment to you as temple vessels. We are His vessels. And in us, even though we, we view ourselves as earth and earthenware, there's glory because we know the gospel. So, Lord, I pray for our group. I pray for our church. I pray that we would see your mission as more than bricks and mortar, more than just showing up, more than just leaving. But we would be part of your mission for your glory because you are building your church, and we don't want to miss it. We want to be part of it. So, God, go with us. And let us live by your grace to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.